Our Common Nature, an exaltation of our living earth, an exploration of our niche within it, and an examination of the lasting solutions we will create by shifting our culture through care, wisdom, and working in community with the earth toward accordance with its way. In this space, we highlight place, building bridges, and finding solutions in the common ground on which we all stand. It is with gratitude and humility that we acknowledge that we are speaking, learning, and broadcasting from the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people, who are the indigenous peoples of this land. Despite tremendous hardship on being forced from here, today their community resides in Wisconsin and is known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. We pay honor and respect to their ancestors past and present as we commit to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all. Hello. Today I'm joined with Britt Terry, who is the farm manager at Natural Roots CSA in Conway, Massachusetts. Hi. Hi. Um, so Britt, tell me about yourself and your journey with farming and your um, experience there at Natural Roots. Yeah. So I started farming eight years ago at an Eastern Mass on a diversified organic CSA farm. And about five years ago, I moved to Western Mass to continue farming and found Natural Roots, which is a horse-powered organic farm here. And we feed about 250 families throughout the year. We farm entirely with horses. We do not own a tractor. Uh, there's five horses right now on the farm. And we also have a flock of about 200 laying hens. We have a pig that turns our compost for us. Um, and we do everything that we can to, to have the farm be a closed loop system. So everything that we produce gets distributed direct on farm. Any waste that's left over from the vegetables gets composted and redistributed back out onto the soils. Um, our hay fields feed our horses, so essentially our, our gasoline for the power that we use to operate everything. And um, yeah, it's a really it's a really beautiful farm on uh, the South River in Conway. And. I've been there for four seasons now, and this season uh, we had a bit of an unusual year due to flooding and excessive rain. Mm. Um, so this year we had 100% crop loss. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very different season than it normally would be, especially mm. this time of year when... Uh, Normally we would be harvesting all of our winter squash and carrots and beets and all of our um, root crops that we would normally distribute during a winter CSA, which mm. we won't be able to, to do this year. Um, but yeah, it gives me the time to do things like this. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to get into your experience with that flood this year. Um, before we get into that, let's um, paint me a picture of the farm about what is the acreage like, how much are you using, what is the kind of topography and the ecology like there? Mm -hmm. So we grow on about seven and a half acres. Half of that is cropped at any given time. Um, and then the other half is under cover crop and we rotate um, the fields um, there's 12 fields total, and they're on a on a rotation. Um, there's about 110 acres of hay and pasture, mm. which we either graze the horses on, or we make hay. Sometimes we make our own hay. Other times we have some farmer friends do it for us. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's about 110 acres of woodlot that we uh, steward and manage, and that 
fuels um, our greenhouse. It heats the cabins for our apprentices and the home uh, at David's. And then we're also able to uh, sell cords of wood to neighbors and friends, which mm. we deliver via horse and wagon. Wow. <laughs> that must be quite the sight to see that coming in. Yes, it's very neighbors. it's very fun to, yeah. to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So almost half of the total acreage is still wooded, it sounds like. Not quite, but nearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Are you finding that there's... I mean, outside of the logging, um, is there other benefit that the sort of the farm enjoys as a whole and having that kind of such a robust ecology right there? Absolutely, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, David's been farming. David is the farmer, um, the owner of the owner of the farm, mm. and he has been there for twenty six years now. Wow! Mm-hmm. And he has been managing the woodlot and the pastures and obviously everything but um he's worked really hard to be very selective about what he takes in maintaining the diversity in the in the forests and it allows for um just resiliency um and we also because we're doing it with horses the impact of logging in those forests is minimal Mm-hmm. Um, the horses don't compact the earth. They don't need an entire roadway of space to get in. They can weave in and around trees. And so when you're logging with horses, you can you can log in a way that you kind of can't even tell that you've been there mm-hmm. once you leave. And that makes a really big difference to the health of the, the forest. Mm-hmm. And are you finding too that there, I don't know how it would pertain to your fields, but is there versus maybe other farms that are more open um, space or uh, aren't quite so right up to the woods? Are you finding that there maybe is a little bit more protection against rodent pests or that sort of thing? Or are you witnessing similar sorts of crop? We have, we have similar mm-hmm. crop damage issues that other farms would have. I think um, we've still got the groundhogs, we've still got the deer that come mm-hmm. in. I think the the benefits to the, the forest and being able to um, maintain those kind of windbreaks mm-hmm. makes a big difference. Um, and our, our field, our main field is right along the river um, and it's, one big space with 12 fields, but then we do have auxiliary fields that are further out mm-hmm. um, that are kind of surrounded by by the woods. Um, and yeah. Cool, yeah. And so with your production fields, mm-hmm. almost for the most part, lying right there on the floodplain. Yes. Yeah, so that kind of puts you in the position when you, you have big events, um, right on the South River, like you did this year. Yes. Yeah, the river during a normal year is a blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, we irrigate our fields from the river. Without it, you know, we we would not be able to be a thriving farm like we are. Floodplains are fertile lands. Mm-hmm. People have been far- farming the floodplains for forever. Since the Nile, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And in a normal year, um, the river is absolutely an asset um, in every sense. It cools down hot farmers on our lunch breaks. It, uh, you know, we the horses drink from it. We irrigate our crops. Um, and a flood event like this, which happened um, actually three different flooding events this year Mm. is very, very uncommon. It's not something that we normally need to think about. Um, The last time the farm flooded was during Hurricane Irene, Mm -hmm. which was um, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
that time we had days notice to prepare because the news was covering. We knew the hurricane was coming and um, the team was able to harvest as much as we could in preparation for the potential that the river would flood. Um, And it did. Mm -hmm. Um, But that period of time, we also were later in the season uh, when that flood happened. And so most of our crops were out of the ground for Irene. This year, the flood that happened on July 10th was completely unexpected. Um, I came across the footbridge at 8.30 to go to our morning meeting and the river was high, but it wasn't flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really think too much of it. And we had our morning meeting, checked in, and within about an hour um, of me crossing the river, we got a call from one of our neighbors that there were chickens floating down the river and that our fields were flooded. So we all ran down, um, trying to assess what to do first. And the waters had risen well over 10 feet, Mm. jumped the banks, and um, the lowest points of our field were already five feet underwater when we got down there, Mm -hmm. less than an hour after I had crossed um, and walked through those fields. And so we all just kind of dove in to uh, jump to action and jumped into the floodwaters and tried to grab as many chickens as we could before they floated downriver. Um, We were able to rescue a number of them, probably about 40 or 50 that were starting to be swept away. We were uh, were able to pull onto higher ground. um, And as the floodwaters started to rise, we realized that it was a pretty unsafe situation for us to continue to to be in, in that deepest part of the water. So we, um, we pulled ourselves out and started to work on the chickens that were still in their enclosure. Mm -hmm. Um, and David went and grabbed the horses to help pull the mobile coop out of the, out of the water, which was already completely submerged up through the floor at that point in time. Um, and Yeah, again, one of the amazing things about the resiliency of the type of farm that we do is that a tractor would not have been able to go into those floodwaters, Mm. but the horses were. Yeah. Um, And they are used to crossing the river at other points in time, and they were incredibly brave and went into the floodwaters with us and were able to pull out the mobile coop and save save the, the rest of the flock. So overall, we wound up losing about 20, 25 chickens down the river out of a flock of 220, wow. which was pretty, pretty incredible what we were able to, to salvage there. Um, and once we knew the animals were safe, we started to go after the equipment. All of our horse-drawn equipment was in um, a section of field that was very close to where the river was flooding. Um kind of in the most extreme way. And we started pulling machinery out by by hand and then the horses would come and we'd pull everything to higher ground. Um, we lost a four cart down the river, um, but we were actually able to retrieve it. About a week later, we found it in a pile of rubble about 300 yards away uh, from where it was originally. Mm. Um, and so the flood, the first flood, amazingly, it could have been a lot worse. Um, but we, um, we had minor, minor losses in the actual, in the immediate sense. Um, but our entire field was completely underwater which meant that the entire crop was um, not salvageable. Anything that is touched by flood water 
according to regulations, is considered adultered um, and cannot be harvested or sold or consumed um, just for public safety, um, food safety rules. And so it took, I would say it took maybe two or three hours for the floodwaters to recede. It was very fast. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a flash flood. Um, but the waters receded and we were able to assess the damage of um, the actual crops. And a lot of what was closest to the river had been completely uprooted and washed away. Mm. Others had been, um, all of the, the topsoil had been swept away. Um, and there were things bare root and flopped over. We were able to see how well our potato crop was doing <laughs> because all of the hills that we had made to, to cover them were, were washed downstream. Um, but we, we were able to um, salvage some things. So we thought until um, regulations, um, sorry. Um, so the regulations around floodwaters are kind of a gray area. There's a lot of recommendations and then there are very few actual laws. Um, so there's a, um, there's some things that are very black and white. If, if it's been underwater, you cannot sell it. Um, if the fruiting body of a plant has, if it's not yet set fruit, it's kind of a gray area. Um, and we thought for a bit that we were going to be able to save some of our, some of our crops. Like if we could write the leaks, maybe we could save them. And if we could, um, if we could put the kale back <laughs> into the soil, maybe it would survive. Um, but it quickly became clear that that not only could we not do that, but that the plants were far too stressed and damaged to to be able to to thrive after that flood. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe it was six days later we had a second flood. Wow! And then another. Two weeks after that, we had a third flood. Mm -hmm. um, the water table was simply too saturated and there was no place for this water to go, um, which was completely unprecedented. Sure. This type of flooding is supposed to be a once in a lifetime event. And we had it during Hurricane Irene and the chances of it happening again um, were supposed to be very unlikely. Yeah. Yet now, this year, it happened three times in, in a matter of a month. Mm -hmm. And our town of Conway actually was the wettest town in all of North America, or in all of the United States and Canada for the month of July with 22 inches of rain which is just completely it's, yeah. unheard of. It's twice as much rain as a lot of places get in a year. Yes, exactly. So we, we were very lucky in a lot of ways. Uh, the, town, the town also suffered a lot of damage to roadways and um, a lot of people's driveways and homes flooded and things like that because the the south river runs right through the town every mm -hmm. everything about the town is kind of centered around the south river including yeah. our farm we are on both sides of of the river mm -hmm. um and so everyone everyone was really affected um but the community has come together in such beautiful ways yeah tell me about that yeah um yeah, the, so after the flood, we obviously did not have any vegetables to give to our membership. 
Um, the way that a CSA model works is that the community pays in advance for their share in the, the crop. And they also agree to share in the risk and rewards that are inherent in any given season. So not only do they, you know, get the bounty if we have a good year, they also um, are with us when we experience crop losses. Usually when we're thinking about crop losses, it would be, oh, we had a disease in our broccoli, so you can't get broccoli this year. That seems like a reasonable, <laughs> a reasonable thing to assume may happen, a risk that, that you may take. Um, but to have 100% losses five weeks into our growing season or into our, our CSA distribution, it's not something that anyone reasonably would expect yeah. to happen. Let's let, let, just to like really drive the point home. You had just finished the Friday before planting out your entire summer season. Everything yes. you had raised from starts from March, April, February, March, April, ready to plant in June, May, June, July. You had just finished planting them all out mm -hmm. two, three days prior. And then the first flood came that Monday. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a really big push to get all of our transplants out of the greenhouse and into the ground that Friday before. Mm -hmm. And then Monday was the flood. So the babies in the ground. All the babies were in the ground. Yeah. All the babies got washed away. For your entire season, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our hot weather crops had been in for a bit, but all of our cabbage and second succession brassicas cauliflower broccoli all of the all of the later season crops that were supposed to get us through to november had just been put in the ground wow and so everything everything was lost mm -hmm. and we yeah we were a 22 week csa and we had been able to do 5 five weeks of that before, before this flood. Yeah. Yeah. So your members, they were, how did they take that? Amazingly mm. well, they were so incredibly supportive. Um, there was obviously a fear that the membership would um, not understand and be angry that they had you know, supported this farm and invested in us, and now they weren't getting what they were expecting sure. um, to to get out of it. Um, but that was not the case at all. Mm. the The support from our community has just completely blown us away. Um, not only have they been so supportive in coming and volunteering or um, just writing us <laughs> letters and coming and bringing us cookies and lunch. Um, they've shown up in, in, in those ways, but they've also uh, shown up in incredible ways by continuing to support and contribute financially through our GoFundMe. Wow. Um, so not only did they pay for a CSA share that they that they weren't really getting. They're continuing to support us through all of these unknown losses and expenses um, that we are going to incur in order to stabilize the riverbank because of the amount of erosion that happened. Mm -hmm. um, and to see, to see that unwavering support was just so heartwarming. Yeah. And We've been doing everything that we can to continue to support them also. Um, our farm, obviously, was not the only farm that flooded. Mm -hmm. Vermont got hit incredibly hard with flooding. And then in the subsequent floods, the farms down in the Pioneer Valley along the Deerfield and the Connecticut River also flooded and experienced major losses. Mm. 
but the farms in our area that did not experience flooding have been so incredibly supportive. So the farm community has shown up for each other in really remarkable ways. And we've been getting offers of produce and other vegetables to come or to be brought to our farm Mm -hmm. um, or for us to go and harvest. And that's on donation. All on donation to help, um, to help us feed our community. Sure. And that's been just so beautiful. Um, there's there's silver linings in everything, and mm-hmm. and one of the silver linings has been there's this opportunity now this year to not only s- slow it down and be really intentional because there's not <laughs> there's not fields to weed and crops to harvest, and we're not going at the pace that we normally would be this time of year. Um, but we've been able to get off the farm, off of our own farm during a typically really busy time and be able to go to other farms and help them through their really busy times sure. by harvesting with their crews and going and weeding at other farms in exchange for vegetables and the the reciprocity that has been happening is just really beautiful. Um, and it's, it's amazing to be able to get outside of your own bubble of farming and be able to become, be a part of the other farms and what they're doing. And farming can be kind of a, an isolating experience peak in the season. You're just in it you're in your own fields and you're just doing whatever you can head down doing as much as you can, as fast as you can. And and this season has given us the opportunity to look up and, mm. and see all of the incredible farms that are doing amazing things all around us. We've been able to go there and to be a part of that. And it's been really amazing to have these farms who are in their busiest times still have the the capacity to to be generous and and to continue to help us feed our people yeah Mm -hmm. and that's not just here in the hill towns in massachusetts that sounds like you're getting support regionally Yeah. yeah yeah we we've had farms as far as eastern mass in uh clark farm in carlisle has offered vegetables Piccadilly Farm in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, Ironwood Farm in Ghent, New York. Uh, they've been, yeah, farms all over the Northeast have been offering to support our farm and and other other farms in in the area and the hill towns and the Pioneer Valley that have been affected by these floods. Yeah, yeah, that really speaks to the nature of the community that exists within the. It's a profession of, of farming, a really lifestyle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And also the whole thing speaks also to just how precarious you are as a farmer, right? Right there, kind of on the front line of the changes that we're seeing now. Yeah, it's a big question now that now that this once in a lifetime event has happened three times in one season. One month. In one month, yeah. Um, it, it raises the question, can we keep farming here? Yeah. Um, how do we farm in this drastically changing climate? How can we not necessarily predict, but mitigate the potential variability within any given season to be able to with confidence say to our membership that we're going to be able to feed them Mm -hmm. in the coming year it's it's a big question with not a lot of clear answers and this this time since the flood where we have had the spaciousness there's been a lot of 
there's been a lot of dropping in and really listening to what does the land want? Mm. What does the river want? What does our community want? And what do we want as farmers? Um, There's a lot of big choices to make in the coming weeks and months to decide how we're going to do things differently next year and in future years, not only to help mitigate the risks of a potential flood, but also just to rethink the the whole process in general. Yeah. Um, are we are we farming at a sustainable pace for our own bodies, for our own for our horses, for our people? Do we do we want to continue to get tangled up in the the thought of profits and profitability, things like that, because we are a business, you know, mm-hmm. there's always the the bottom line that you have to make. Um, but how can we how can we continue to do that in the way that most honors the land that we're on? Um, and does that mean that we change where our fields are that we're that we're farming, um, that we're cropping. Do we do we look into trying to move some of our fields to higher ground? Um, do we look into, you know, changing the shape of the river mm. to help um, keep our fields as they are, mm. or? Do we accept that Mother Nature has a plan for things and that rivers are ever-changing and that we cannot fight nature? Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of, of, of deep pondering over how much action we really need to take yeah. um, and trying to think really, really hard about what those decisions mean long-term, not just for the financial viability of the farm, but also for the, the viability and health of, of this little land that we farm mm-hmm. and the river itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we've been, we've been working with, um, ecologists and a bunch of professionals and NRCS to to come up with a plan to do what we need to do to make sure that we still have access to the farm. Yeah. We we cross over the river with this by the uh, footbridge mm-hmm. that uh, was very close to getting swept away. Um, and we need to do basic things like protecting the bridge and protecting our utility poles and our river crossings so that we actually can get from the farm to civilization. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, um, a lot of the options are, are pretty drastic. Um, how do you change the shape of a river? It happens, yeah. people have done it, but is that something that we really want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and that question is, or that answer is, is no, we don't want to play God and, and make these drastic changes to the river just to keep it from doing what it naturally will do. Um, but there are, there are other, um, things that have been recommended that can help us, um, keep the keep the fields protected and keep our our infrastructure protected and still allow the river to to meander as Mm -hmm. it as it might want to yeah Um, and that's going to mean that we may have to move some fields um we may we may lose some of our our land to the river Mm -hmm. and that's okay yeah 
So NRCS is that's the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Yes. Yeah. And that's yes. a federal body. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Okay. And that's is that who's giving you most of your recommendations or um NRCS is we're working very closely with them. Um mm-hmm. And in particular, a local field agent, um, and we also have a an, an engineer working with them. Um, so yeah, they're they're predominantly the ones giving us most of our recommendations, mm-hmm. um, and they're working with the the excavation and like the crews that that we've hired um, who. Um, they're doing like bank stabilization. They're doing them. river bank stabilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's one particular area of the river that has completely looped back around. Um, and the, the flood itself completely flooded one of our pastures. Um, and essentially what's happening is it it has the potential to become an oxbow Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of land. But, um, we also have a pretty large solar array. Um, that powers all of the farm and um, south of Vermiso, which uh, we share the property with. Um, and that one piece of infrastructure um, with the panels is that bank is very compromised mm-hmm. um, and runs the risk of impacting structures and big buildings and things like that, too. So we are, um, we are doing some pretty drastic riverbank stabilization there in that particular part just to keep um, to keep that hillside from landsliding essentially mm-hmm. um, but aside from aside from that we're being very uh, I would say thoughtful sure. <laughs> um, in in trying not to disturb uh, what's naturally happening as much as we can. Yeah. In, in these recommendations, is there any talk of, um, ecological stabilization, like planting riparian buffers along the stream edge? We're planting, um, some willows. Um, and there are plans to, to plant some, uh, trees as opposed to what's naturally happening along the entire South River um, and pretty much all the rivers in the valley is uh, Japanese knotweed has taken over um, and it's pretty much wiped out everything else. Um, And between that and sumac, that is essentially what our our riverbank is right now, at least on the one side that was already cleared. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can see the the side that that wasn't cleared as much the older trees um and their root systems are holding the riverbank together Mm -hmm. um, much more efficiently um so taking from that knowledge we the engineers and the the crews are actually using trees and root balls to stabilize the riverbank because they're very effective um, those are not living trees. Mm-hmm. Um, felled trees to do felled this. trees, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and you know they're bringing in boulders and things like that. It's called sure. riprap, but um, they are using the root the root ball systems. Um, and they have been pulling trees that have already felled. So those all felled trees. Are you, is there any kind of thought in doing that as in getting living roots in the ground along with that? Yeah. Yeah, after after the main stabilization efforts, we will be replanting. Um, there's s- still considerations to be made of what specifically will be planted mm-hmm. into the the banks. Um, but David's working with the the ecologist and and NRCS to to do everything that we can to keep this as. Um, natural as possible mm-hmm. which is a uh, kind of a silly thing to say <laughs> because yeah some of you know what what needs to be done in order to maintain the infrastructure is um it's substantial sure um, and it does i mean from my own research it does seem that these sorts of solution ecological solutions 
might even be more effective. The only issue is they take a while yeah. to establish. Yeah. Yeah. And and maintenance, because if you're dealing with something like knotweed, which will outcompete any woody plant, right. you have to keep it cut down or right. managed somehow to give those trees and shrubs a chance to take root mm-hmm. and stabilize that bank. Mm-hmm. Um, is there talk about however much um, kind of buffer zone there is off the banks into your fields that's going to take? Yeah, it's interesting. The 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 regulations now, um, we do have a, a large buffer zone that we're not supposed to cut back. Um, mm-hmm. And the knotweed itself still does have a root system that um, does protect from protect the the banks from erosion in some sure. ways. Um, and so that buffer zone, we already are um, not really supposed to touch. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to plant intentional things and try to keep those thriving and keep the knotweed back, there is more disturbance that actually needs to happen than those buffer zones allow for. Um, and so there's there's a lot of talks with, um, you know, the local conservation commission and um, and the town that we need to pull permits and do mm. all of those things, obviously. And, and there's been a lot of conversation around um, what kind of nuance needs to be added into that conversation um, because when when something is already disturbed, you can see this in, in clear-cut forests and things like that. When something is already disturbed and then you just let it go, it's the invasives that thrive, yeah. at least at first. Um, and so when, when humans have already had a hand in, in the disturbances that happen, to then just completely be hands-off is actually not good stewardship. It's irresponsible. It is, yeah. yeah. And and unfortunately, a lot of regulations um, have to be pretty black and white, and mm-hmm. they don't allow for those kinds of nuances. And they they protect things from being taken advantage of, and they're really good. But in, in some situations, when we're trying to be um, even more intentional, these hands-off approaches just really don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see by the way David stewards the the woodlots that he is also uh, very committed to stewarding the the vitality of the riverbank. Mm-hmm. Um, and figuring out how to best do that is a big question that we're working through right now. Yeah. And it does sound like, too, this sort of... Um, bank stabilization project, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. You guys, I mean, as farmers with this season, you know, you have a little, given what's happened, you have a little time to do these things potentially, but it's the kind of work and maintenance that takes up to a decade to really get, get it established. Yeah. Are you considering that maybe there won't be the time and space in productive seasons in the future to attend to this? Or is there going to be a way to keep that managed? It's a concern. Um, I think that we we probably will look to outside sources to help us maintain and and continue to to do the work that's needed because uh, yeah, we're we're pretty maxed out mm-hmm. during the the season with what we need to do to grow the vegetables that we need to feed our community. They, yeah. There's not a, a lot of time, but the the bigger thing is um, this riverbank stabilization is not a job for horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we simply don't have the the equipment, the the power to do all of this ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and the maintenance once everything is planted and stabilized we probably could, mm-hmm. um, but it would take a lot of time. Sure. There's a, there's a balance that I think people and a lot of farms have kind of lost due to mechanization. Sure. 
um, there's a there's a pace that is set when you're working with animals as closely as we do um, that you know you you can't you can't work them too hard mm-hmm. you can't work the horses too hard you can't work your own bodies too hard mm-hmm. and when you're up in a big tractor or an excavator or something like that you don't have that same there's a disconnect um, to like the needs of <laughs> <laughs> your own body. Um, and I think the, the land too. Um, yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on something like the bill that was just passed and signed by Joe Biden to establish what's what they're calling the American Conservation Corps? Could potentially a body like that, a, an organization like that, be the boots on the ground to do this sort of um, restoration, ecological restoration work? It's always possible. Mm-hmm. I think that the the reality with any sort of, especially federal government body, just like with the floodwater regulations, um, it's kind of it kind of has to be a one size fits all approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like our South River and the Mississippi River, for example, there's no differentiation in the in the regulations. Mm-hmm. So a potential contamination event in the Mississippi River is highly likely. In our South River, highly unlikely. But there's no room for nuance in in regulations that need to cover an entire country or even an entire state. And so if there are local agencies connected to these efforts that can really be present and thoughtful in identifying what this very particular space, this very unique ecosystem, like Mm -hmm. if they can really look at it with eyes that are meant just for this particular environment and not for you know, the entire Connecticut River Valley or the mm-hmm. entire state of Massachusetts. I think there's a way that they could be very helpful. Um, but I also think that the people who will make the best decisions are the people who are intimately connected mm-hmm. to this land and this river. And um, the localities should lead. Yes, the localities should lead. Yeah. And having support in that from larger agencies is amazing and is uh, important. It's going to be crucial to have that support to be able to get done what we need to get done. Um, But to have a larger agency take over the the planning and the decision-making um, would be troubling, I think, for us to to think about. <laughs> sure. Yeah. What are your hopes now for the season and for the farm and for you know the seasons to come yeah. in, in the aftermath of this? So we have decided that we are growing next season. Great. Uh, yes. Yes, that's very exciting. Um, with that comes a bunch of unknowns. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to be really transparent with our membership um, that you know we're doing everything that we can to mitigate the risks of um, something like this happening again. Um, but we also need to to just kind of trust. Yeah, and. So we're moving forward um, and starting to sell renewals already. Um, I think- Membership renewals. Membership renewals, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think next year, next year is going to be a season of trying again Mm -hmm. and really listening, continuing to just be really present with the question of 
what wants to happen here. Sure. Um, and what the land wants to happen here. Yeah. What does the land want to happen here? What does the river want to have happen here? Um, and also, what does the community want to have happen here? Yeah. Because there, there is a, a very real possibility that, you know, the events of this year have made the risk of being a CSA member with us too high for some people. Um, and so our membership may be smaller. We won't know until until that time comes. Um, but we're going to continue to grow for all of our all of our community members, and we hope that they continue to to want to be a part of our part of our farm. That's really beautiful and really encouraging that that you guys are going through it, plowing through. You know, as I say, to keep it up. Yes, um, yes. Our the- garlic is going in the ground in a couple weeks. Ready for next year. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Britt. This has been really great. Is there anything you want to say and end on or um, any way you want to have people look for natural roots or contact the farm or what you're doing there? Yeah, you can you can find us at Natural Roots CSA on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we have a website, naturalroots.com. And, and if people want to donate to your GoFundMe? Yes, the we have reached our initial goal, um, but the GoFundMe is still open because um, the cost of the riverbank stabilization is still very much unknown. Sure. Um, so, yeah, if you want to donate to our GoFundMe, that is the Natural Roots Flood Relief Fund. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, this means a lot. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in the coming seasons. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach out with any comments or questions, feel free to email us at ourcommonnaturepodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at our.common.nature.